Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the Drop-In CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to mitigate crises and help teams get back on track. This podcast is about helping the C-suite leader to navigate challenges with confidence. For today's leader, I'm here to help you get back on track. Tomorrow's leader, let me partner with you to learn the secrets of the C-suite. Wherever you're at in your career, this is the podcast for you. Hello, I am Deb Coviello, founder of The Drop-In CEO, and I want to thank you for joining us on another episode of the podcast where I get to speak to amazing leaders and share their insights and inspiration with you. And if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review so we can always bring you great programming. And on a personal note, just know I do all this work because I care about the C-suite leaders of today and tomorrow to navigate those challenges with confidence. And now I am so honored to share the mic again with a returning guest, Rabbi Yonason Goldson. Yonason, also known as the Ethics Ninja and the Hitchhiking Rabbi, works with leaders to create a culture of ethics that earns trust, sparks initiative, and limits liability. He is a keynote speaker, business advisor, and TEDx presenter, as well as the award-winning host of two podcasts. We are going to go there. And also, he has a seventh book, The Spiral of Time, which is due out in August. And his column, The Ethical Lexicon, appears weekly in Fast Company magazine, and he serves as executive vice president of the Missouri chapter of the Coalition for Jewish Values. Yanison, welcome to the show. Thank you, Deb. I always enjoy our time together. And oh my, so do I. You have been so kind to me as well. A little bit for my listeners. Yanison was on episode 65 back in October 30th, 2020. And since that time, he made an impression on me for which I have had the good fortune of being on his podcast as well as his weekly Grappling with the Gray panel discussion. So he's a voracious content creator. We share that. But also what I really love about him is that he is just a great thinker. He talks about grappling with the gray on ethical topics. What I really appreciate is that he's trying to get leaders to think differently, leveraging ethics and humanity to help us draw better conclusions about ourselves, family, friends, and community. So with that, I am so grateful that you've dropped in on the show, but I would love for you to ground me again a little bit about your vast career and how did you land on this body of work being a leader in the area of ethics? I'm never quite sure where to start with questions like that. And I'll give you the very, the very quick thumbnail. I graduated from the University of California with a degree in English. And what I loved about English was the opportunity to see how language can be used to communicate profound ideas that can change the way we think and change the way we act and change our lives and change our culture. The problem with having a bachelor's in English is what do you do with it when you graduate? So I went hitchhiking across the country and backpacking across Europe. And my travels took me to Israel. And that's where I connected with my Jewish roots. I'd been raised with really no knowledge whatsoever of what it meant to be Jewish. And I discovered this vibrant culture of deep thought, you know, ancient tradition. And I ended up spending nine years in Israel, studying the ancient wisdom of my people, got my rabbinic ordination, met my wife, had her first two children, and then embarked on my career teaching high school to Jewish teenagers to uh, try to share the insights that I had discovered to inspire them and how they would lead their lives. When I retired from teaching in 2016, 
I wanted to use the universal principles of Judaism in a, you know, in a broader context for a wider audience and a professional audience. There's so many applications of Jewish thought that are universal to all of us, not just Jews, and particularly to people in business. And when I tried to encapsulate the wisdom of Judaism into a single word or a single term, what floated to the top was ethics. Because, yes, we need to follow the law, or in business terms, we need to be in compliance. But at the same time, there is so much more to doing the right thing. Our relationships are built on trust. And trust is earned by applying the principles of ethics to our lives. And we often face a challenge. We're in a culture that it's designed to convince us that we have to make a choice between being good and being ethical, and nothing could be farther from the truth. Now, there's so much evidence, statistical evidence, anecdotal evidence, and then simply common sense that tells us that when we hold ourselves to a higher standard of behavior, when we act with integrity, we gain recognition in the eyes of others. And they want to work with us. They want to be part of us. They want to join forces with us. And this is how great partnerships are formed, great collaborations are formed. This is how we drive success in every aspect of our lives. And certainly in our business as well. You have me entranced by that opening about how you arrived at that body of work. And again, hey, we have a teenager, young adult in all of us that feels a little bit impatient, not sure about our direction. And so many people don't have that opportunity or take the opportunity to travel the world and arrive at a place and thoughtfully think about what is it that I am meant to do. And so some people, maybe even myself, might be a little bit jealous, even though I'm sure it wasn't always easy to hitchhike (laughs) and take the time needed for you to find what is it that is meaningful to you. So I just wanted to acknowledge that for you. I'm sure it wasn't all easy, (laughs) but let me just ask it. It sounded glorious, but just tell me what were the kind of the trials and tribulations of that and then transitioning and what did people say? And did you even really care? (laughs) Oh gosh. We can spend the rest of the show on this. (laughs) Somebody once said that humor is pain plus time. Go on. We look back at, at what were really difficult situations going through them. And and as we get some distance, we can find the absurdity and the irony and and, and it becomes humor. It may be a defense mechanism, but I think it's worthwhile. If we think about that as we're going through it, you know, one day I'm going to have a great story, (laughs) but standing on the side of the road for three hours in Denver in the snow is, is not something that you really want to be doing. But when you get picked up by a Yugoslavian Seventh-day Adventist who talks so much that he runs you out of gas in the middle of nowhere. It's uh, <laughs> these are the the anecdotes that that we end up with. So yeah, it was it was a wacky idea. It was in the early '80s. It wasn't like the '60s and '70s when everybody was hitchhiking. So it was considerably more dangerous and probably ill-advised, and not something that my parents were terribly thrilled with. But I grew up in a very comfortable upper middle class home. And after four years studying the great writers and thinkers, I, I realized I had plenty of book smarts, but very little street smarts, and that I needed to put myself in a situation 
where I would have to face the unknown and the unpredictable day after day if I really wanted to grow and blossom and, and take that academic learning that I had acquired and find a practical way of putting it into my life. What you said there was just so profound is that we do get comfortable in our careers, in business, or in our ways of working. And it takes either a kick in the pants to go forward or something to pull you forward to take the decision to do something that's uncomfortable. But perhaps the thrill or the adventure, the unknown can outweigh the risk <laughs> and what could go wrong. So point well taken, and it definitely has shaped who you are, or at least in the beginning of who you are today. I want to just go back to something. Again, your opening was just amazing. And when I think about society today, when we <laughs> talk a lot about this on LinkedIn, people out there, if you don't know Yannison very well, go to his LinkedIn feed. He is putting out video like every other day, all kinds of content. He has so many thoughtful things to say. But what I find is that with society being a bit chaotic right now in the U.S. and perhaps globally, that the one thing that perhaps can ground us is start to learn about ethics make sure we're grounded in our values, trying to do the right thing when nobody is looking. To be a thinking human versus just a doing human is probably the missing link for a lot of us if we happen to feel slightly lost in what we're doing. I think what I'm feeling right now is just great peace. If you can get some knowledge or some values grounded in ethics, it might be able to guide you through challenging, difficult decisions, et cetera. So that's what I'm feeling from what you're saying. I think it's very, very valuable. Well, there's no question about it. And the irony and the challenge is that we all recognize how important it is. And yet there's a certain resistance to investing the time and the energy and the resources to actually do anything about it. We don't have a working definition of what ethics means. And if we don't have a definition of the term, then we're really lost in the woods. It's relatively easy to choose between what's obviously right and obviously wrong, what's obviously good and obviously bad, but we don't live in a black and white world. We don't live in a binary world. And so ethics is really about choosing between right and right or wrong and wrong prioritizing our values. And that's why this really insidious term that I despise, situational ethics, which is used to mean that ethics change from one situation to another, it's dangerous. And what we should understand is that it's much more nuanced than that, that ethical principles are eternal. They're absolute, but situations change. And what do I do when two ethical principles come into conflict with one another? As you know, this is the type of conversation we have on my Grappling with a Great podcast, that look at a situation, let's not jump to a conclusion of what's the right thing to do. Let's look at all the angles and try to understand the variables, the priorities, the conflicts. Once you can see from a variety of perspectives then you get a clearer picture of the totality of the situation, and now you're better prepared to make a thoughtful and an ethical decision. And of course, that's what diversity is all about. It's not just about checking boxes or having equal representation. It's about bringing together different points of view and perspectives, because that helps us more clearly see the full picture. 
you've got me thinking, and that's why I enjoy these conversations so much. Diversity of thought, again, sometimes when we are in a company or owning our business or or what have you, we do get a little stuck because what worked for us in the past may not work for us going forward because the situations could change and maybe we're not so grounded in our values or our ethical decision-making, so we need a little bit of external support. And what I'm thinking right now is I think about you because I am here to elevate you. I want more people to know about the value that you can provide. A buzzword lately is corporate culture, and they will bring in consultants to help with the corporate culture. We are growing, thriving, and we want to maintain a good culture. But I have not heard leaders or anybody talking about there that if you want to have a good corporate culture, it has to be rooted in ethics, or at least that's one approach that might be missing. Because we want to make sure people continue to make the right things, leveraging their mind <laughs> and good values. And I'm, I'm just curious, how might this help corporations maintain a good culture leveraging ethics? Because I'm sure there is a potential financial benefit if they were to invest in this. Oh, yeah. And I mean, this is what I talk about in my in my keynotes and my, in my training programs. The Harvard Business Review put out a study a few years ago. And they compared companies ranked in the top 25% with companies ranked in the bottom 25% for trust. And the statistics are remarkable. I mean, employees working for companies ranked in the top 25%, they report having more than twice as much energy on the job. They say they are much more engaged, much more productive, much more likely to stay in their jobs, much less prone to depersonalizing coworkers and much less prone to burnout. And let me remember the exact statistic. I think it was in 2019, the top 40 publicly traded companies ranked as best places to work by Glassdoor beat the S&P by 400%. 400%. Good ethics is good business. And yet there is this tremendous resistance to actually making it a priority. Well, and that's why you and I are here today to get in the ears of our listeners, because if you're a senior leader out there and you are struggling with a growing company, you're maybe in an industry that has a lot of risk. How do you know that your people are going to take the right decisions given challenging or challenging situations, could it be a worthy investment to at least ask the question, get an external view such as somebody as Yannison to be able to at least give you some thoughts about, do you have the right culture grounded in the right values and ethical decision-making to know your people are going to work well together and also make the right decisions on behalf of the company? You know, Deb, I spoke to the senior leadership team of a major supermarket chain a few weeks ago. And I was told ahead of time that there was a serious disconnect between what the employees said of how they related to the company culture and what the leaders thought the employees would say. And, and I, tried, I tried to help them frame their perspective on what they could do to transform their culture and improve that trust. Because... You know, this, again, statistics tell us so much. In 2018, the Trust Edge Leadership Institute found that what employees said they wanted most from a job was not money. It was a boss they could trust. But Harvard Business Review reported 
that 58% of employees say they would trust a total stranger more than their own boss. So don't be part of the 58%. (laughs) Yeah, that's an important statistic. And again, that's why I bring experts like you onto the show, because I want people to start thinking about their own situation. And like I said, what external support or input could they leverage in order to maybe change the trajectory of maybe a company that is not going to be sustainable because people may not be making the right decisions? I wanted to take a moment to remind you that a recent study showed nearly 60% of leaders feel depleted at the end of the day. And this feeling is a key indicator of burnout and makes it difficult to lead and inspire others. If you've ever experienced that restless exhaustion, you know why CEOs are amongst the most likely candidates for experiencing job frustration. I wrote The CEO's Compass, your guide to get back on track to confront those feelings and create a plan that is sustainable for you and your organization. I created a seven-point assessment that will help you figure out your problems in days, not months. And it includes so many resources, worksheets, videos, and much, much more. If this is you, please head over to my website, dropinceo.com, and click on my products, The CEO's Compass, and order yours on Amazon or other outlets. And now back to the conversation. Now, I want to go a little bit deeper into your work because you are very passionate and I am as well. When you talk about the power of words and wisdom of language, because we're all communicating, but we're not necessarily messaging in the right way. We're not sending the right signal and then we don't get the right response. Tell me a little bit more about your thoughts about power of words and the wisdom of language. Well, we could have a whole episode on that too. (laughs) I firmly believe that the most important book written in the last century was 1984 by George Orwell on many levels. But one of the aspects that often gets overlooked, but I think was really Orwell's perhaps major theme, is language. In the book, they're creating a new language. It's called Newspeak. And their goal is to get the vocabulary down to 200 words. Everything a person needs to be able to say to communicate on a rudimentary level and nothing more. Because if you don't have words, you know, think about a totalitarian society. If you don't have words for rebellion or dissatisfaction or oppression or tyranny, right, then you can't formulate those ideas because we think in words. And when we don't use our words correctly, when we don't have grasp of our language, that means our thoughts are muddled, or we may not be able to think at all. And when you look at the war on words in our society today, you can't say things that might offend anybody, even if there's nothing intrinsically offensive about the words. What is that doing to our capacity to think clearly? So, and again, this goes back to the tension between what we ought to do, what we have to do. Do you want to live in a world where every word that you say is put under a microscope for any possible negative meaning? Or do you want to live in a world where people are willing to presume positive intent, to give you the benefit of the doubt, to work to understand your meaning rather than look for the worst possible kind of meaning. 
when we don't use words clearly, we can't be successful. We can't get along with each other. And, and society starts disintegrating. You see a lot of that in cultures where there's this, this kind of oppression of, of vocabulary. I sincerely appreciate this theme. Again, I get entranced when I'm listening to you because it so resonates with what I'm saying. I have often given talks myself about powerful words for influence. When one says, I think we could, we might, and even do it in a tonality that leads to questioning of whether we are confident what we're saying versus we can say things like, I need, I propose, we must. And while one might say, those are aggressive words. Whoa, where are you coming off saying those things? One has to, if we haven't taken the time to understand each other and build relationships, you don't understand the context behind the words. I am simply trying to move an initiative forward, and I'm using my forethought to say, I believe, I know, and I propose. So I absolutely agree with you that we have to develop a crisp vocabulary, but one that communicates messages to get things done versus dumbing it down and, and limiting us in our communications and to your point, thinking, because thinking <laughs> starts and then the vote words come forward and vice versa. Yeah. And, and the other and the other side of the coin is we want to be respectful. So I want to find out if there's language I'm using that is offensive to you. And there are ways that you can communicate that to me that is equally respectful. You know, I, I'm an Orthodox Jew. And then I've developed uh, a lot of relationships online that I value very highly. I feel very close to people like you that I've never met in person. And I was at a conference a few months ago, and I walked in the door, and the first table I came to was filled with people. I knew all of them, and I'd never met any of them. And, and one woman saw me. She had a big smile on her face. She jumped up. She ran, walked over and gave me a hug. Well, in the world of Orthodox Judaism, there is no physical contact between men and women who aren't immediate family members. Right? She didn't know that, and I don't expect her to. So I'm not going to get offended that she violated my cultural values. Why should I? She meant well. She did something that was completely appropriate in her cultural reference. But we've talked about it since then, and we laugh about it. And she might do it again sometime because we react spontaneously to situations. But it's it's giving people grace, giving people space to make mistakes. Not even see them as mistakes, but to be themselves without me looking for some reason to take offense. Mm-hmm. And you know, my, the rabbi, my synagogue was giving a sermon, and and he used the word "gypped." We, we gypped somebody, and I went up to him after I said, "You know, we don't say that anymore." There was a time when nobody thought twice of it. Since, since then, we've become aware, right? It is a cultural slur, and it's not something that people who are sensitive should say. And I just warned him that, you know, in our, in our community, probably nobody really thought about it. But in a different community, people might be very offended by it. And he appreciated me pointing that out. Yeah, I think when we talk about the power of words and the language we use, it's one of those tentacles that link very well back to ethics, because in ethics, we're faced with choices, trying to do good in challenging situations, and sometimes we have to interface with other people. 
and communicate with other people, make decisions with other people. And you bring up the strong point about having context, understanding the words that we use, because if you're trying to collaborate or make a decision and we don't use the right words, we could potentially offend or maybe make the wrong decision. It just all comes down to making the right connections with humanity and where we differ, try to understand. Maybe think that, that we, we mentioned compliance laws a little bit earlier. And you know, compliance can be the greatest enemy of ethics. Because what is compliance? It's an attempt to legislate ethical behavior. And ethics is all about us making evaluations. And if I abdicate the decision-making process to a set of rules, ultimately I'm going to suffer because I'm not going to be grappling with those decisions. But also you cannot create a system of laws or rules or regulations that is going to account for every possible scenario. And you know, just like people will say, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't illegal. I didn't do anything wrong. I was in compliance. That is cultural poison because it dilutes our whole thinking process. You know, you said you love to think. You reminded me, I think it was Apple Computer that used to have the, the slogan, think different. And I would say just think is a good slogan. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. It's almost slightly conflicting with my world coming up in, through manufacturing, where ultimately we want to try to error-proof every process step such that if a person has a decision to make that they don't negatively make a bad product or service and then a customer or client is impacted. So we try to error-proof everything. But what happens and what we learned is that knowledge is powerful because doing something without context or understanding so that you can think and make decisions periodically, you do dumbify the individual and you probably have more defects produced because we haven't educated people not only to the what but the why and the impact if it's done wrong. I've got plenty of stories around that, but I support that, that compliance well, is yeah, important. I mean, you up, yeah. yeah, you end up dehumanizing <laughs> people by turning them into robots. You have no decisions to make. Everything is laid out for you. Just follow the numbers, follow the dots, follow the, the checklist. You need checklists, you need rules, but you also need, you know, we're human beings. We want to be creative. We want to be contributing. We want to take our own unique selves and put them into our work. And if you look at the places where the businesses that that allow that and encourage it, those are the ones that really soar. I mean, you know, Zappos is a place I love to point to. People love to work there. And they're given so much freedom to engage customers in their own personal style. It's not a it's not a high paying job necessarily, but people love to work there because of the culture. Trader Joe's people love to work there. People love to shop there. You almost never hear anything negative about it. You walk in and everybody's smiling. That's culture. I was just there last week and I felt that it was buzzing and humming and people were happy. Versus it's time to make the donuts, <laughs> trudging along. <laughs> Amazing. This conversation, really, I appreciate it because it so showcases how you think. And I want my listeners out there to start thinking 
start just thinking, <laughs> not alone differently. And obviously, ethical behavior is critical to humanity. But I want to give you a little bit more time because I understand you do have a seventh book coming out, The Spiral of Time. It's coming out shortly. Tell us more about that book because I want people to get a copy of it. Yeah, this is a style that I haven't used for a while. And again, I'm going back to my, my Jewish roots and The Spiral of Time. The idea is, the name is, that as we go through time, we, we're not going in a straight line. And we're not going in a circle. We're going in a spiral. And it's based on the Jewish holidays, but it's not written exclusively for a Jewish audience. The Jewish holidays all have different values that we are meant to draw out from them. Passover is freedom, but freedom is potential and accountability. What do you do with your freedom? Hanukkah is a cultural battle between integrity and, and the forces of, of really moral anarchy. Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, is a time of judgment, self-judgment, self-evaluation. It's followed by Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is the idea of repentance, which really means renewal, getting back on course, accepting the consequences of our actions, and now moving forward to do better with the commitment to do better. And so these are themes that are so relevant to our lives. And as we go through, we circle through those, that cycle of holidays. And when we come back to the same point in the following year, we're not supposed to be at the same point we were the previous year. That's the idea of the spiral. We move constantly outward, growing, expanding, learning more. The things that were challenges before are no longer challenges because we've mastered them. The things that were completely off the table that were way beyond us before are now within reach. And life is a constant process of growing. You know, you mentioned earlier, it's so uncomfortable to change. Well, all the gurus tell us, get out of your comfort zone. So why don't we? Because it's uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, they're called growing pains for a reason. And it doesn't matter how old we are, where we are in life. Right? Remember that poster from the 60s? Whatever is, was it Bob Dylan, right? Whoever is not busy being born is busy dying. Bob Dylan lyric. <laughs> I, I just love this because if I have to reflect back on where was I a year ago, where was I four years ago when I said, I am going to start my own business, I'm going to start my own podcast. It was a day that I had to record my solo. I had it completely scripted and I was nervous. Could I do it? Would I flub my words? And yes, to this day, I continue to flub my words, <laughs> but I was just about to not do it. And then somebody called me up and I was talking to him about it. And they says, what's holding you back? And I said, you know what? It's myself. And we had a great conversation. They came at the right time and right place. I pushed the button, recorded the solo episode. And now as I look back to then, to now being a prolific creator and creating relationships with you, Rabbi, as well as my audience, I have grown so much four years ago, three years ago. And I hope hope our listeners will also reflect on where were you a year ago? Where will you be tomorrow? How can you leverage ethics, better decision-making, and be able to lead a more fulfilling life for either you or the people that you serve? So you and I could talk forever, and we have spoken many times, but I would love to give you uh, the floor one last time as we bring this to a close, because I want people definitely to remember you and also connect with you. Well, you made me think about my own transition 
into what I'm doing now. And the first time that I recorded a, a three-minute video probably took me two hours. <laughs> and, you know, I look back at it now and I'm so wooden and, and so, you know, uncomfortable with myself talking to a camera. Do anything, you know, that, that, that famous 10,000-hour rule. You know, long before you get to 10,000 hours, you get better. And in our, in, our, in our mindset, in our outlook, ethics, we can think of it as a muscle. You know, the more we challenge ourselves to, to hold a higher standard for ourselves, to expect more from ourselves, you know, we tend as human beings to expect more from others and less from ourselves. And that's exactly backwards. We're all human beings. We all make mistakes. Give others a little grace and lead by example. When others see you showing integrity, showing kindness, showing thoughtfulness, acting in a way that makes you trustworthy, they can't help but be inspired. They can't help but want to be more like you. And that's the message that I try to communicate to leaders and professionals, and really to all of us, because we can all be leaders. Anytime we set a positive example, we are we are leading by example. And anytime we don't, we're also leading by example. What kind of leader do I want to be? And on that note, thank you so much, Rabbi. Thank you so much for being not only an inspiration to myself, but hopefully to anybody's listening out there. And if you enjoyed this episode, please, please share with somebody else. I want this to be a great resource for you, whether rabbis talked about it or I. Please share this with others because the more we can share these topics, these thoughts with others, the more we're going to elevate ourselves as well as humanity. So, Rabbi, I want to thank you one last time for being an amazing guest on the show. My pleasure, Deb. Always, always enjoy our discussion. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO podcast. I hope you are inspired by our conversation and can apply what you heard to your business or career goals. If you found this valuable, please share this show with at least one friend who will find it useful and inspiring. When you share this podcast, it allows me to continue to help C-suite leaders of today and tomorrow to navigate their challenges with confidence. To connect with me or learn more about the Drop-In CEO services, go to my website at dropinceo.com. And until we meet, I wish you well and much success.